Welcome to the 83rd episode of Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast. This is David Helvard. My co-host Vicky can't be with us today, but no worries because we're talking with our old friend Rob Moyer, Executive Director of the Ocean River Institute. Rob last spoke with us about voting the ocean just before the historic 2020 election. Rob's based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where he's also on the advisory council for the Boston Islands Harbor National State Parks. A longtime sailor, he's just returned from sailing off the frigid waters of Scotland. So any sightings of the Loch Ness Monster at sea? Well, we tried, you know, we went from Falmouth, Cornwall, up through the Irish Sea to uh, Scotland. And I think further research is warranted. But I, I find that a good dram of the finest whiskeys really does, does help. If not the Loch Ness Monster, maybe a shiny spy balloon. Yeah, well, there's one island that looks just like a submarine. It's a low, sandy island. And we were in submarine water. So we got all excited when we thought we saw a submarine. But it was just Bird Island off of Troon. Ah, and what were you sailing on? Oh, good question. It was a catch. 60-foot long Scottish boat that's named Eda Franson. And so being a catch, it meant that we had uh, a big mainsail. And then it's the old type with a, a wooden spar gaffed on the top of it that you have to hoist up to pull the sail up. And then there's a top sail that we get set on top of that. So it was good old time sailing. Sounds like an adventure. Now, Ocean Rivers covered a broad range of issues from nutrient runoff in Massachusetts and Florida to protecting right whales and manatees to mobilizing for climate justice and carbon offsets at the local, state, and national levels. But actually, before we get into Ocean River and its latest projects, how did you first connect with the sea? How did I first connect with the sea? Well, my dad taught me how to sail. We had this little rowboat, and he would hold the boat with his water up to his knees. And I would sit down with the the steering stick in one hand and this this rag and a pole and a, and a cord of line in the other hand. And he said, always go to windward so you can come home again. So that's my philosophy in life is that to take the power of the wind and or take the power of other stuff and go against it requires you going back and forth in different directions. And sometimes no matter how hard you try, you can't reach your destination. But damn it, you're going to be out the next day doing it again because it's not the destination that counts. It's the working together to achieve it. So how old were you when uh, your dad first put you in that little? Eight. And and you kept sailing the rest of your life? I mean, and I kept f- sailing the rest of my life. Yeah. So I'm very comfortable when the boat's tipping. I know the feel that the boat is secure, not about to tip all the way over. Because you learn that in little boats, they're unforgiving. They, they, get, they tip over really easy. Yeah. So people say, how can you survive? But it's like, you can just feel the difference. So how did uh, your sailing adventures lead you to uh, ocean conservation? So I was sailing off the coast of Maine in college. And all of a sudden, this stretch of hide, the size of a sandbar, the size of the 27-foot sailboat, was beside the boat. And I but I was going, Abi, Abba, Abu. And my friends thought I was having an epileptic attack because they were down below. And they all came rushing up to see this circle of water in, yeah, circle in the water. And what had happened was a right whale come up right next to the boat to look us over and then sunk and disappeared and was never seen again. But that inspired me to go back to college and get Rockefeller funding to teach a course about whales. And so the following spring, I had heard that April 15th is when the whales arrive off Provincetown. And so I was there with a bunch of college classmates for the first commercial whale watch out of Provincetown. 
And the rest is history after that. So the first commercial whale, oh, watching the whales, not commercially whaling them. No, 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 exactly right. So uh, Stormy Mayo had just gotten out of the University of Miami and had come up um, back home to Provincetown. So what, what year was this? 1976, probably. Okay. So it was really a right whale surfacing next to your sailboat that kind of inspired you to get into whales and from there into whale watching and conserving. Absolutely. I could not imagine a living thing was that big, you know, and you're on top of the ocean. You don't see much life except for the birds. And so, holy smokes. Yeah. That and discovering plankton and some other things uh, and just growing up playing on the beach with, um, you know, all the little critters and stuff. So you grew up there in New England? Yeah. Yeah. So we would summers, we'd go down and play with my cousins on the South shore of Cape Cod. And, you know, we'd take the blanket and and catch fish with it. And then build a pond and the, build a thing in the sand, you know, where we'd put all the crabs and fish and like engineers. And then we'd be ocean managers by releasing the the critters back into the ocean. And uh, I was I, very much inspired by Rachel Carson. Most people, they know Silent Spring, her book on, on uh, DDT and poisons. Most people don't realize that Rachel Carson was a great writer about the sea, the sea uh, around us and, and other books that were both hugely popular and they became uh, Emmy-winning documentaries and uh, a, a and real right. influence. That's why they read. They bothered to read Silent Spring was because she's such a good writer and we liked reading her stuff. And uh, she asked E.B. White to write Silent Spring and he said, no, I'm too busy writing about nuclear, possible nuclear strikes and stuff. She thought he was more of a writer and she was more of a marine biologist. But uh, the Ocean River Institute got its name from Rachel Carson's The Sea Around Us, where she talks about uh, all at last return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. So I see Oceanus, the ocean river, as systems thinking. You know, the ancient Greeks talked about Oceanus, the ocean river, dividing the known world, which would be the map in the middle, from the unknown world. So they'd have this this river around the known world and then the monsters on the outside, which is all unknown. So it, it was, there's a generation of us inspired by Rachel Carson as the marine biologist, as kids watching Sea Hunt, uh, Lloyd Bridges playing Mike Nelson, underwater investigator. And then of course, a few years later, Jacques Cousteau specials came on. You were a sailor, you were saying, you saw your first right whales, big hunk of skin at the surface that then dove below. Then you said, I went back to college and started teaching about whales. Now, a lot of young people think I'd like to do that, be that. How does one actually go back to college and start teaching about whales? What, what was your course well, there? Well, I was fortunate because I was going to Hampshire College, which is a brand new college that had just started in 1970. And I started there in 73. And so they were looking for courses. You know, th the idea was that there'd be all these kids from... Um, the baby boomers. And so this would be located in the five college area of Amherst area. And the professors would go on to be taken up by the other places and stuff. It just was a coincidence that uh, the development officer was talking to the Rockefeller Foundation about, you know, we should get the students filling in because the faculty aren't there enough. And so they liked the idea of that course. And so I was actually paid. My friend Peter Landon and I were, um, who was on the boat with me, uh, we got paid one summer to put the whole course together. So it was pretty phenomenal. We didn't get paid to teach it, but we got paid to develop it, which is cool. So you did the first commercial whale watching off of Massachusetts. And 
then what led from there to uh, you, you sort of defined the name Ocean River, but how did the organization come into being? Uh, yeah, 2007, I was employed by the Ocean Conservancy, Mass Audubon, and uh, Conservation Law Foundation. They had money from Gordon Moore to promote the Massachusetts Ocean Planning Bill to get the different silos of the government to talk to each other. And they hired me to organize the public to support ocean planning. And they said, oh, and rent the state house. And so I said, yeah, I'd love to do that, but I'm going to create Ocean River Institute to do that. So it's a nonprofit. And we began the process of not only getting people to sign on to an idea, in this case, ocean planning, but we asked them to write a comment about it. So we started raising the voices of many people and educating them about it. And that has grown now from 4,000 people supporting it to over 40,000 subscribers. And uh, you just oceanriver.org and uh, sign up for our e-letter, uh, e-alerts. And, and you see it on our homepage, too. We have like six different campaigns we're working on. And any one of those, if you're interested in it, would be great to have your voice in it. So it, it is, as you say, um, trying to get people engaged on something. And I think a lot of people still don't know what you mean when you talk about uh, ocean planning. What is ocean of, planning? Yeah. So the city of Winchester is at the head of, uh, not Winchester, Winthrop, is that has a beach at the head of Mass Bay. It's naturally muddy, but the they had sand brought in. So they had a sandy beach there and it all eroded away. So they went to the state and said, bring us sand. And so three years later, the sand people from the state says, okay, Winthrop, we're going to take the sand from over here in the ocean and put it on your beach. And in the back of the room was the Department of Marine Fisheries saying, no, you're not over my dead body, you know, because that's where the fish eggs are or something. And so this, this planning bill was to get all the different silos of government to talk to each other. And uh, and eventually they put together an overlay of each to their own map of where the sensitive areas and less sensitive areas. And they could overlay that. So when a developer wanted to put in internet cable or you know Wi-Fi to Martha's Vineyard, they came to the process saying, oh, I see we're already going to have to go under underwater through the intertidal, a mile of intertidal stuff. And then we're going to have to jog north on um, in Buzzards Bay to get around something else. So they come to the table already halfway there. And then the different agencies can tweak the planning to, to make it even better. So it's kind of like urban planning, but in three dimensions. Because the ocean's three dimensions and seasonal because we get different fish there at different times of year, too. So it's really complicated. And of course, New England has a long history where the fishermen sort of were the interest in the ocean. And then the cable layers came and the transport increased with the shipping. I think with ocean planning, one of the first good examples was when the Coast Guard moved the shipping lanes to protect uh, the right whales, the whale you first fell in love with. That's phenomenal. Yeah, all the whales, the humpbacks and the fins and the minke whales, they all come and feed on Stellwagen Bank, which is this threshold between Provincetown and Gloucester. And and the shipping lane goes diagonally across that. And that's the long route. And they realized they had all this uh, from 1976 to, you know, they had a lot of years of whale watching data. And they realized that the whales were kind of feeding in a figure eight kind of shape with a narrow point in the middle going east-west. So that's where they they moved the channel to go across east-west, across that kind of least fed area for the whales. And when they moved the shipping channel, whale strikes, uh, whale collisions and mortalities decreased? Well, it's hard to say because there's so few to begin with. But um, 
what they did next was they got the the LNG tankers to pay for buoys that would listen and then transmit what they were hearing in the ocean to Cornell's ornithology lab, where they knew what whales were supposed to sound like. And if they heard whales in the vicinity of the buoys, it would light up. We had, that, had like this marauder's map, you know, on all the decks of the ships that said whale in the area, slow down to 10 miles an hour. And that made a big difference. And that's now what our campaign is for whales is to have all ships in the presence of whales go 10 miles an hour. So slow them down so they don't strike. And the ornithology lab, the bird lab, is now listening for whale songs. Right. And they're very good at distinguishing whale songs from crab songs, from, you know, all the different croakers in the ocean and stuff. There's all kinds of noise down there. Well, I kind of like to just stay on the right whales a bit because um, Ed Markey's put a bill in to help with the right whales. And so one of our campaigns is to promote this um, better management of right whales. And as you know, the biggest killer is ship strikes. And we've had a lot of deaths of whales up and down the eastern seaboard this year. And the right whale is is the most endangered whale in North America. Is that right? Well, that's right. So the right whale is like 350 whales. And the other whales are over a thousand whales. And the right whales were about 350 when I first saw a right whale. And then it went up to 420. And then it came down again. And um, then when it started going down, they decided to look elsewhere and found, whoa, they're up in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. And so then the feeling was, we've done something to the Gulf of Maine to send them away. But it's natural for a population when it gets to a certain size, the adolescents are going to wander farther afield. And we don't know what that is, but that's what I think happened was that, you know, they went back to their natal shores in the, in the uh, St. Lawrence and said, St. Lawrence is half again as big as the Gulf of Maine. So they just were happy up there. Uh, and then we had a fatality of a right whale killing a person cutting a, the, the rope off his tail. And so that was followed by, they left two whales tangled and they had a bunch of uh, crab boat sized collisions of killing right whales that that year. What you mean? So rescuer was was killed or accidentally drowned trying to save yeah, the right whale. No, he, yeah, exactly right. He had just cut cut free the tail, the flukes, and the the whale lifted up its flukes and smashed it down on top of John Howard. It's just the risk of the business. They were from from, from uh, New Brunswick, and so immediately Canadian uh, freeing of whales stopped altogether. And so it's part of the, the coexistence. So the two killers are, well, there are three killers. And one is ship strikes. Another is getting entangled in the, the crab traps or the lobster traps. And the third is the food supply. What is interesting is the phytoplankton is decreased by about 65% over the last 25 years in the Gulf of Maine. And that makes no sense when you think about warming water and longer and more sunlight, you know, hotter and warmer, you know, uh, waters and stuff. You'd think that would generate. Yeah, that would be more phytoplankton. So I think what's happening is that where we see the greening of more lawns in on the state of Maine and, and around the watersheds uh, and the, the putting down more power lines that require herbicides and people are putting fertilizer with herbicides on their lawns. I think that like Roundup and stuff, these long lasted things are uh, depressing the uh, phytoplankton. So if we want to save right whales, it's not just wagging your fingers at lobstermen. And the and the Massachusetts lobstermen have been really good. They don't lobster in April when the whales, they don't 
lop, set their traps when the whales are in the area at some expense. But you, rather than waving fingers at, at speeding boats, then you know we should look at what we're doing on our own backyard and, and how it affects the greater wildlife. Do you think the phytoplankton is actually being suppressed by all these chemical uh, fertilizers and pesticides running off? Yes, and we also see uh, these long-lasting chemicals surviving in the whales, and so that they um, they bioaccumulate in the fat tissues of whales, uh, especially fire retardant chemicals that have been recorded, and they're finding that there's more poison in the male whales than in the females because the females have dump it in their milk into the into the young whales, so uh, the young whales are getting it through the milk as well. So we just have got to stop polluting. Our, our waters, because whatever we do on our land ends up being washed down to the sea. And of course, if these toxins are running through these mammals that are breastfeeding, that these toxins are probably running through us. It's kind of shocking to talk about 350, 400 right whales left. I, I believe they're called right whales because during the commercial whaling era, they tend to loll at the surface and they were easier to kill. And so ten thousands, tens of thousands of whales became these last three or four hundred. That's right. They come in real close to the shore. They like sandy, shoaly waters. Uh, at the right time, you can walk along Herring Cove in Provincetown, and the, the whales are like fifty feet off the shore. It's just phenomenal. And when you kill them, they have so much blubber around them. They're a slower swimming whale. They have no dorsal fin. A dorsal fin. Is like a feather on an arrow. It helps the whale go straight when it's going fast. But if you're slow swimming, you don't need a dorsal fin. So these are slower swimming, plankton-eating whales, and they have more blubber. So they don't sink when you kill them. The other ones sink when you kill them. So they would have to attach a long line with a balloon or you know a floater at the end of it. But these guys, they float. Well, it's interesting. I mean, in the 1850s, America's number one industrial export was whale oil, and that was the driving industry before the railroads. And we've only been protecting marine mammals for just over 50 years now. So, uh, you know, well, we're not killing them directly. There are all these other threats that we create by our numbers and our industriousness. Ocean River Institute's Massachusetts-based, you were talking about preventing runoff that kills the phytoplankton, perhaps, in the Gulf of Maine. But you've also worked uh, elsewhere. You've gone into Florida to, to protest the nutrification, as they call it, the overburdening of uh, agricultural and and uh, and and lawn-based chemicals that are impacting the manatees down there. Well, I was trying to stop the nutrient runoff causing harmful algal blooms in the in locally in Massachusetts, but I had to go town by town. And so in Florida, you can go county by county, and there are five counties in Indian River Lagoon, so that's a manageable amount. So we went to uh, Martin County, which had the highest number of dolphin deaths, went to the commissioner there and said, would you stop having them fertilize the grass in the summertime when the, the algae is the bloomingest and the rains are coming, washing it off? And he said, because the dolphins are dying. And he said, well, Mrs. Got Rocks in Jupiter Island is upset about seaweed on the beach with her kids. And so I pivoted and said, yes, this will fix that. And so by he was able to serve his constituents by saying no spreading of fertilizers from June 1st to September 30th and respect the setbacks in the waterways and use at least 50% slow release fertilizer. So people learn about what slow release is. They learn about the setbacks. And um, we kept it very simple. The other county had it complicated, never got anywhere. 
But of course, then the industry just went ballistic over this. The fertilizer industry. Yeah, yeah. Imagine people not using it for a third of the year. Oh my God, their heads exploded. So they reversed all the other county commissioners. So I went back the next year and they all of a sudden were talking different stuff. And they went to uh, Tallahassee and said, we're going to have a best practices law that says you'll pass this test, pay the state $35 to be a fertilizer spreader certified, and then you can ignore county regulations. And that was just a way to get around what they were doing in Martin County. And they were doing similar stuff on the other coast. Uh, And so we had people from Florida writing their representatives. And so there I am delivering 186 letters to representatives in Tallahassee. And um, they said, oh, we were tabling that bill. Why did you shout at us with so many people? And I said, you need to understand that local counties have a right to figure out what's the right amount of fertilizer and how to treat their lawns. And Indian River Lagoon is not the same as some fast fast water flowing place, you know, off the tip of the Florida Straits or something. So it took about five years, but all the counties now do not fertilize in the summertime. And to be clear, yeah, petroleum-based synthetic fertilizers don't actually enrich the soil. They deplete no. the soil. Yes. And by not using them, you can build soil, which absorbs more water with these torrential rainfalls we're having. You can get the water back into the water table. And they always include in those fertilizers, herbicides and things like Roundup. And Roundup is turning up in our ice cream because the cows eat the grass that has Roundup in it. And Roundup is turning, and glyphosate, which is in Roundup, glyphosate's turning up in our ice cream and in our beer too, because the hops that are being grown are get are giving glyphosate so they don't get weeds around them and stuff. And you think these herbicides and these synthetic fertilizers are also what's killing off the phytoplankton, which the whales depend on. Right. So everything is everything. When you're saving your lawn, you're saving the, the springtails in your lawn, you're also saving the right whales in the ocean. And that's where you want to be. So it's fun working with the legislators because I will meet with a legislative aide who's on the environment. And as a former science teacher, that's my parent-teacher conference time where I want to learn the legislative style of a legislator. And I want the legislative aide to look good to his or her boss. So we're trying to figure out what can they do, you know. Some of them, you can't use the word climate change. So you just talk about extreme weather events or, you know, figure it out. But, um, and then sometimes the different constituents, the different people who are commenting uh, will raise an issue or the the senator may have, or the legislator may have an issue that has to be addressed. Either the, the bill has to be changed or I understand why this guy cannot support the bill, but there'll be more next year. So you have, so it's, I have great relationships with everybody. Uh, because I'm going to be back next year. And so I want to hear how their family's doing and stuff like that. And so it's building personal relationships, but more importantly, building those relationships from the bottom up because they listen to their constituents. Absolutely. They serve their constituents. And so if their constituents are stuck on this, it doesn't matter what I say, that's just forbidden, you know? And so the, the way is to drill is to try to figure out what is the issue. I was, as you know, a founder of Ocean Champions. And so there we uh, put through a harmful algal bloom bill and it didn't go anywhere until Senator Jim Inhofe from Oklahoma went for a swim in a lake in Oklahoma and swam into harmful algae and said, I hate environmental legislation, bring me this bill. And uh, he said, take out three words. And you can imagine what two of them were that began with C's and, and reduce the budget by 10%. And the climate change, just to be clear. 
Well, I wasn't supposed to be clear. I'm not supposed to say what the three words are that he said, but uh, <laughs> but you said it, not me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, this so is then what... the Republicans were, were, would support the bill. But then the Speaker of the House said, well, I'm sorry, but uh, my my constituents are a landlocked state, and I don't think they want to spend my capital on an ocean bill. So this is not the time to bring in a marine biologist. What do you do? Well, we were in good communication with the staff. And the staff said, well, you know, this senator um, doesn't like seafood. He has a sensitive stomach. So his daughter found us or found a chef that made him a seafood dinner that he liked. And then he teed up the bill for passage. And this is how democracy works, is people vote their interests. And you, if you want their support. Or, or their stomachs. Yeah, exactly. So it sounds like. You've got a local focus, but you're aware of what's happening at the state and the national level. You engage a lot of interns and youth and you you keep it fun. I mean, that that I hate to say the lighter side of the apocalypse, but, you know, trying to grow the solutions as fast as the problems. Yeah, no, we're just we're charging into apocalypse, you know, laughing all the way kind of thing. And just because it's the fellowship, it's pulling together and, and helping each other along. And and that's the other thing I take from sailing is not only ch- changing course and tacking and not always getting where you want to. But when you're on watch, you do your best. And when the watch is over, you explain to the oncoming watch, you know, what's been happening. And then you sleep like a log because you know that other people are in the trenches fighting or, you know, I don't like that similar, but they're on deck working, you know, the ship to windward. So that's how I'm able to sleep at night. And I also know, you know, at the end of the day, you do the best you can and you leave the rest to the quiet faith of man and so forth. And so, you know, it's really important to find ways to do things as opposed to just pointing fingers and blaming other people. That is is just disruptive and doesn't make it work. So Rob Moore, my friend, I think that's a good place to end. Thank you so much for joining me on Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast. David, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier, co-hosted by David Helberg and myself, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein, with support from Natasha Benjamin and Ellie Curla. Rising Tide's editing services and technical support is provided by Studio Kate May. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbarg. You can find Rising Tide, the ocean podcast at bluefront.org or download it from Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free, the sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea. Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear. It's true, it's the blue frontier. Tear, tear, tear. Off in the salty ocean, off to the blue frontier. Sparky, come here, buddy. Sparky, there you are. Good boy, Sparky.